This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 8th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The so-called Green New Deal is here, and the plan demands a mobilization of resources not seen since World War II. So what's in the proposal? As a technical matter, not much. But as a wish list of aspirations and timelines, it is quite striking in its scope. Peter Van Doren edits Regulation magazine. He comments on the first draft of this Green New Deal. First of all, it's a non-binding resolution in the House of Representatives that Speaker Pelosi hasn't even agreed to have a vote on. So there's certainly at this stage lots of huffing and puffing, and the base is certainly happy uh, that it's finally in charge of the church. But it's not even officially going to be a sermon yet. It's more like the rumblings in the back bench. So substantively, it's a gigantic wish list about if only we passed laws, then we could get rid of ExxonMobil and fossil fuels and the Koch brothers and this and that and the other thing, and everything would be all renewable all the time if only we just passed the right laws. That's the, And we would employ a lot more people and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every, everything you think is wrong with the current world could be remedied through the enactment of this resolution. So in terms of policy details, as you say, it's a non-binding resolution, but there are aspirations contained therein with respect to energy. What are they? Uh, It would set the goal of total renewable energy use in the United States in, uh, I think it said 10 years, uh, which is more ambitious than any other uh, non-binding resolution that, that I know of. Then it would use various public sector investment banks. It would create sort of, in effect, public sector investment in everything green and then bring it to fruition. That's sort of the short version of it. Uh, And again, in the New York Times discussion of it, it said an appalling lack of detail in this wish list. So it's not not that. I I don't want to say one way or the other what's in it or not because it's it, it wasn't even that clear in the versions that I read. So what do we know about uh, targets that are set for, you know, either in one respect, they talk about re- renovating buildings in the U.S. In, in the, over the next 10 years. And that is, you know, extremely ambitious uh, in terms of for energy efficiency and that sort of thing. But what do we tend to know about targets for moving to renewable energy that have been created thus far, or at least aspired to thus far. Well, let me let me look backwards. The most famous one, uh, I, I think I can remember, but most of our listeners probably don't realize or remember, is that in 1970, the California State Senate voted to ban the internal combustion engine in five years by 1975. This wasn't a a, a non-binding sense of the Senate resolution. This was an actual policy that the California State Senate passed and the United Auto Workers was in favor of it to show you how things had had gone. And last time I checked, the internal combustion engine was still alive and well, and uh, it never happened. The second looking backwards goal I would discuss is uh, the 1972 Clean Water Act had very ambitious goals for 
water quality in the U.S. And as of 2016, over one half of U.S. rivers and stream miles violated the 1972 standards uh, in the Clean Water Act. So in the environmental area, more than other policy areas, there is a sense that that virtue signaling is goes on much more than in other areas. And even binding policies pass, which have amazing goals in them, which are actually beyond our capability. And deadlines go by and then nothing happens and sometimes there's fines and then they get thrown out because you can't. Anyway, so even if this were binding rather than non-binding, I would predict that this notion of technology forcing uh, would come against reality eventually and we'd have to do all sorts of things to, in effect, wink, wink and not actually comply with the law but not all go to jail. Okay, so within the realm of what is technically feasible and not all that costly, what is in here that you would point to and say, that seems fine, that seems uh, like a reasonable target? Well, ironically, the in, in my investigation of solar and wind, uh, the costs relative to uh, other sources of, of certainly electric energy, it is not decentralized solar panels that actually seem to me to be cost effective, but ironically, centralized solar um, in the deserts in the West, where you have mirrors that focus the sun's rays onto a, usually a sort of molten brine or molten sulfur, in effect, heat content carrier, which then goes to uh, boil and then run create steam and run turbines. So in other words, a, a traditional centralized electric plant, but the source of energy is concentrated solar rays rather than uh, fossil fuel or nuclear. And what I've read is that actually is, um, fo- is cost competitive. But that's, I'm not sure how the public and and environmental activists think about that kind of solar when they mean Solar, my guess is they think of decentralized panels on on everyone's house. Uh, So that one um, kind of thing is possible and is, in fact, currently in use in the West. But again, it makes sense in a desert uh, where the sun shines all the time and it's far away from urban load and it's tied in with transmission system that somehow already exists and that you don't have to build it. Wind, more difficult, much more difficult because the wind uh, is variable and thus behind every wind farm is is a fossil fuel backup problem. And in effect, the more you try to rely on wind and the less steady the wind is, the much more difficult it is to somehow equilibrate supply and demand in an electricity context so that the lights don't go off. West Texas is, again, vacant, and you can have it, it, the wind blows there a lot. But, and even Texas has had difficulty in integrating all that wind uh, into its system without an explicit capacity market that backs up in case the wind isn't what the models thought it would be. What of the uh, elements that don't relate to energy, the I guess, the the mobilization of a workforce to reinvigorate uh, buildings to, you know, alter the infrastructure of the United States. Is there anything that you can point to or or questions that that ought to be asked before some of this moves forward? Well, two. One is um, sort of outside my expertise, really, which is 
how how many people are there really available and trainable and uh, that would respond to uh, increased demand fueled by public sector funding in this regard? In other words, is is there a Certainly during the Great Recession, there was a set of people, but but now we're at low unemployment. Um, we certainly have less percentage of working age people working than historically was true. So there are there is a sense that there are people no longer looking for work, but again, they may have attributes and, and skills which are so mismatched relative to what we might spend the money on that it's not clear that whether we could come up with the people to to uh, respond to this increased spending, then on the on the other side, so that's the the sort of could we somehow get all this to work without having labor market wage inflation? Two on the building side, there's a famous experiment that Mike Greenstone uh, out of University of Chicago has run on the the low income weatherization program, and again, there's this notion that because of a lack of income or a lack of knowledge, there are dwellings, uh, let alone office structures in the United States, that if we augmented their insulation capability, they would use less energy, and that would have a less global warming uh, footprint, and it would be cost-effective. But it doesn't happen now because of a combination of a lack of knowledge on the part of the consumers or a lack of income uh, or access to capital to put these investments in that would lower their energy use. Greenstone and his colleagues had a random assignment experiment in which they studied this uh, in the Midwest, and they found that um, basically when they actually measured uh, energy use and whether or not it was cost-effective or not, there was no difference between the control group that got no extra advice and no extra help and no extra anything and the experimental group that advice that got advice plus money. That finding certainly ought to inform these kinds of uh, very aspirational notions that there's just this um, amazing reservoir of uh, out there that isn't being served in terms of uh, conservation investment. And this is on the residential side. On the, uh, on the office building side, presumably the owners of office buildings are rational maximizers of this and that and the other thing, and they know the costs and benefits of doing X and Y and Z, and they have tax schedules and depreciation schedules, which induce the owners of buildings to actually update their capital fairly often because of the tax consequences. And so, again, the notion that somehow they're not doing things that they could do to save money uh, on their energy costs by changing the way their buildings are are insulated and designed, uh, that, that strikes me as even more implausible. So, uh, you know, what this plan, such as it is, is calling for is a lot of massive spending up front in hopes of capturing a lot of savings on the other side. And at least with respect to energy, that sounds like nuclear power. That is a huge upfront cost to get a plant built and then uh, fairly inexpensive to maintain it. Yes, right. The history of nuclear power has always been very aspirational in that regard, uh, in the sense that it is true that the ratio of capital cost to marginal cost among our fuel sources for electricity is the largest for nuclear. But the notion that 
if we had economies of scale and we built more and, and, and as we got more experience that the capital cost side of nuclear would go down with learning. And thus, if we could figure out effective uh, waste disposal strategies and convince the public that we had uh, come up with such waste disposal strategies, and thus we didn't need to force it down the public's throat, that nuclear would be the way to go because uh, it's obviously carbon-free. However, the experience of France, and then at the margin, there's some new plants in Finland, and then there's the federally subsidized augmentation of plants in Georgia that's occurring as we speak, the ability of anybody to build low co lower cost nuclear plants and take advantage of learning and to get that capital cost component down to the point where the lower marginal cost recouped the benefits um, over time from that initial capital cost, there's very little evidence that we're actually capable of doing that. And again, both the engineering community as well as the pro-nuke environmental community keep claiming that the low-cost building of a nuke through uh, economies of scale and things like that is just around the corner. It just seems like the corner seems to keep disappearing. And, and thus, the so far, there's no evidence within the United States nor anywhere else in the world, particularly France, which has many more nukes than, than we do, that they've actually achieved that that goal. Any effort to undertake a massive mobilization in the United States faces bureaucratic challenges and just, you know, the nature of a collective action problem. Can you speak to that just generally? Well, that's why uh, war, war creates states. War is the ultimate collective action mobilization uh, effort that's a, that a society undertakes. And these kinds of mobilizations in, the, in a very decentralized, fairly libertarian U.S. context relative to Europe has always been difficult. And thus, the proponents of such strategies often use war metaphors, even if the underlying purpose is domestic. And so a new deal is an, is a, was a certainly an, an echo of my goodness, everyone sort of knows we had a terrible time and Roosevelt made speeches and then we rallied. I mean, that's sort of how, regardless of the facts of the time, that's the sort of way it's sort of filtered down to be discussed in current U.S. popular culture. But again, if we borrow all the money to do it, it's one thing. I mean, ironically, the one thing the Dems and the Republicans can seem to agree on these days is to cut taxes, and, and but not cut spending. And thus, my guess is this Green New Deal would add to the deficit, and then we'd have the discussion all over again of whether deficits matter. The public seems increasingly to ignore any call by any elite of any stripe to worry about that thing. So... Uh, the impediment to massive borrowing seems to be non-existent other than a partisan struggle over they don't want one side to borrow for its stuff rather than their side. But then getting every if, – if we ex try to explicitly deal with costs and maybe pay for this, then I can see people trying to use a war metaphor to try to mobilize everyone to be for this even though we're, we're taxing somebody to help pay for it, that it would be worth it or something like that. Um, so we, I can see people trying to use the war, you know, the war metaphor, but 
since it's not a real war, uh, it might be quite difficult to actually unite us in that goal since the kind of stuff I talked about from the 70s, the sort of speculative augmentation, remember that both parties were competing to be better on the environment in that context. Whereas in this context, there's a sort of very obvious allegedly pro-environment party and then there's a, an allegedly retrograde, backwards-looking, non-environment party. But notice the parties aren't competing to be both on the same side. And so that's why I'm not as worried about this uh, Green New Deal as I would be, given what I know about the 70s, when we had both sides competing to, in effect, signal virtue about this. Whereas now, we're sort of in a stalemate where one side says X and the other side says not X. Peter Van Doren is editor of Regulation Magazine. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>